Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Network. This is a special series on Malcolm X and Black nationalism. In this series, we delve into the background of Malcolm X's action and thought in the context of Black nationalism, correcting the fundamentally mistaken notion that Malcolm X was a civil rights leader. He certainly did not see himself in that way and explicitly argued otherwise. This helps us place the Afro-American struggle in its dimensions beyond the current American nation-state, including the Black Atlantic and beyond. Today, our guest is Michael Sawyer, author of Black-Minded, The Political Philosophy of Malcolm X, published this year in 2020 by Pluto Press. Welcome, Michael. Thanks, Kirk. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, I, I really look forward to it. We, we have uh, a lot of mutual uh, acquaintances in common, uh, and I think that, that can also spark uh, a lot of discussion as well. Uh, where uh, I'm joining you from Trinidad and Tobago in the Caribbean, so this part of the Black Atlantic. And where are you right now? I'm in the Rocky Mar- Mountain part of the Black Atlantic, so I'm in Colorado <laughs> Springs right now. <laughs> All right. Right. Nice. So, well, we usually like to start off our interviews by asking the authors to just give us a little bit of a background to yourself, particularly in relation to the subject of this book. So can you do so, please? Sure. Uh, So I grew up in, I was born in 1967. So I grew up on the south side of Chicago during the 70s, kind of in the temporal and intellectual wake of, you know, the civil rights movement, uh, the black nationalist movement, et cetera. So I grew up with an awareness of the nation of Islam as a kind of omnipresent force around the South side of Chicago, you know, on Saturdays, you'd always see them out, uh, set on the final call, or, you know, I was aware of the mosque. I was aware of, uh, Elijah Muhammad's home in Hyde Park and all those kinds of things. So I grew up with, if not a conscious awareness, but kind of a, you know, implicit awareness of the nation of Islam and thereby Malcolm X as in many ways, I think you're opening with respect to this question of whether he was a civil rights leader or not as kind of, I don't know if counterpoint is the correct term, but uh, in in some ways, the opposite of the ideological stance of Martin Luther King, right? So I was aware of that as a child. And then as you kind of grow older, uh, I was always preoccupied with Muhammad Ali, who I think was probably outside of, you know, my father and kind of other people around my parents, definitely was kind of my hero growing up. So from that perspective, I was aware of the, the oftentimes strange response that uh, people within the Black community had towards Islam and the Nation of Islam in particular. So I think my, my most conscious uh, point of exploration into thinking about Malcolm X was through my relationship as a child to Muhammad Ali. And then when I got to college, uh, I read kind of, it's one of the few books that I've ever read without stopping, right? I read Alex Haley's uh, work with Malcolm on his biography. And so that became kind of a touchstone. And I was going to school in the D.C. area. So there were all kinds of, up on Georgia Avenue, there were all kinds of uh, bookstores there. And I would go there and I remember buying 
like those kind of cassette tapes with the the message to the grassroots or the battle of the bullet. So that's yeah. why I really started spending time consciously in that environment and become a familiar. That's interesting. So that's, that was in DC. Yeah, it was in DC. So I went so to. So you moved. Yeah, when I went to college, I was I went to the Naval Academy in Annapolis, but I had cousins and friends who went to Howard, right. so I would be in, in DC whenever I could on the weekends. And so, you know, that that environment right. on George Avenue was rich for that kind of exploration at the time. Interesting, interesting. So, so it, what's interesting is that uh, al- although you were in the environment where Malcolm X and the Nation of Islam were sort of all around you, in a sense. Um, uh, it's when you left, that's actually when you read the autobiography. Interesting. Yeah, it's one of those things where, you know, it's one of those books that's that's around and you want to get to it. But, you know, I was it was one of these situations where I had, you know, whatever high school kids have going yeah. on. And mm-hmm. so I didn't get to it until probably I think it was my sophomore year in college when I actually spent the time to kind of consciously give it the effort and attention that it deserved. Right, right. And and so, uh, in terms of you um, uh, writing this book in particular about the political philosophy of Malcolm X, how did how did that come about? So I went back to graduate school to get a PhD, kind of late in life. So around two thousand ten or so, I was applying to programs, and and somehow I got accepted into the uh, first cohort of the Africana Studies program at Brown University, where our mutual friend, uh, Barry Moore Anthony Bogues, was the director of graduate studies at the time, and he was my dissertation chair. And when I got to Brown in 2011 for the first year of my study, we would, we sat down to talk, and he asked me uh, which philosophers in, in the Africana tradition I really wanted to spend my time focused on. And it was strange because Malcolm was, was in my mind, but I didn't think it was I didn't think it was appropriate to kind of place him in, in the realm of philosophical thought at that time, right? So I named kind of the obvious, you know, kind of Fennon, uh, Du Bois, C.L.R. James, Sylvia Winter, you know, those uh, figures who occupy, for better or for worse, kind of, you know, Mount Rushmore of Africana philosophical and political theoretic, theoretical thought, right? So as yeah. I was working on my dissertation, I... Uh, just somehow I was just looking at stuff and I came across that kind of iconic photo of uh, Stokely Carmichael, uh, Mary Baraka and H. Rap Brown. And, you know, I was like, man, I should write H. Rap Brown and see what he thinks of the work I'm doing in this, in this, in my dissertation on Fanon. Cause I know how large a position Fanon occupied and, and that's kind of the, the rest of the earth being almost the earth text of that, that strand of kind of black nationalist thought, black radical political thought. So I wrote to uh, to H. Rap Brown, who's who's now known as Jamal Alamine in in federal prison, where he's serving time for this incident that happened in Georgia with police there, who he alleges were trying to kill him. And you know, there's that back and forth between them. So he wrote back, uh, and he asked me to send him the the text, the manuscript that I had. I did that. Then he called me, and so we would have these conversations. And in one of them, he said to me. He, and I quote this kind of in the text, he's like, Malcolm X represented the the kind of ideal of black radical political thought and, and philosophical practice. And it was kind of a, a shock for me because it made me revisit what I think is the, the, the conscious or probably unconscious exclusion of Malcolm from 
serious philosophical thought only because I think his biography overwhelmed and his lack of kind of written production overwhelmed the kind of fact of his of his thinking. And so it made me go back and spend the time. And so then I talked to uh, to Tony Bogues after I had graduated and said, you know, I really want to think about writing this book on Malcolm, but I don't know if I'm the person to do it or and I don't know if it, there's something here that that bears this inquiry. And he was really adamant about both of those things positively. He's like, you should do it. And, you know, there's definitely something there to explore. So that's that was kind of the the uh, the first vibrations of the the desire to write the book. And then when I was teaching uh, black political thought here at Colorado College in my first year, we were studying uh, Malcolm's speeches and I came across that the term black minded and it and it preoccupied me in really important ways for the book as and I was like, this is the thing that I want to understand. What does he mean by this question of being black minded? And that was the kind of entry point for me in order to to get past the question of another biographical. And I think we, we never run out of the need for uh, careful biographical sketches of important figures like Malcolm X, but I'm not a historian. And to get me past that, what I think it was a, a boundary for me, for my system of thinking and approach to the book, to then think about Malcolm's actual philosophical thought rather than his biographical or the kind of historical uh, life that he lived. Yeah, that's that's uh, really interesting. I mean, there's a lot of um, points uh, in your biography that uh, I could um, you know connect with. I was born in '68, so just uh, a year after you, so kind of have the same uh, you know spanning the same uh, era and whatnot. Um, and yeah, it, it, in terms of, uh, of of the idea of of um, well, even the Atrap Brown um, picture you're uh, talking about with uh, Amiri Baraka uh, and so, um, no, was it Stokely Carmichael or was it Huey? It was Stokely Carmichael. It's Stokely yeah. Carmichael. They, yeah. They are um, underneath a picture, a, a painting of Malcolm X, aren't they, in that very picture? Right. Yeah. Above them, there's a picture there in some bookstore someplace and there's a picture of Malcolm behind them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I I'll, I'll tell you a little story. Um, it's actually when I was studying in Jamaica, and that's where I met uh, Tony Bogues and uh, and Brian Meeks. Uh, Brian was a supervisor of mine, and we've since gone on um, in various ways and and have interacted over the years, talking about Caribbean um, thought and, and Caribbean um, thinking, uh, which touches a, a lot of these same things. People like Carolyn Cooper. I don't know if you, you know about her. But uh, she's done amazing work looking at the oral tradition in Jamaica because, you know, the, well, if, if you depend on the written word, then there's going to be, um, you know, a bias towards uh, literate, more literate cultures and, and the, the oral tradition. And, and so much work is embodied in things like popular culture and, and music, uh, um, which are not sufficiently uh, taken sufficiently seriously um by um the western academy and academy in general because in in jamaica itself where, where i went to do my master's in development studies and we were doing a course on um, on modern political thought i remember the very first day i was um uh I got into a huge argument with my lecturer about the um, syllabus. I, I was looking at it and it was like Hegel and Weber and, um, and Marx and 
Right. I can't remember who else. And I was, and I said, where's, you know, Garvey and, and Malcolm X. And, and I, I mean, I, I was, I, um, yeah, was, was trying to make the, the case as well that, um, you know, you know, the written tradition is, uh, um, well, first of all, it's exclusionary in, uh, just on the face of it. But then there are deeper questions as to what we include. And I think that the point you make about the autobiography is very important, and I'd like you to expand on that. And I'd like you to critique something about me too, right? To, 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 I'd like to hear your opinion. Because for me, I got into Malcolm X through his speeches, right? Through, through path, the Pathfinder books were probably the first ones I read um, uh, by any means necessary and, and on Afro-American history and other things. And, and I think Pathfinder purposely kind of put him in a kind of socialist um, perspective and, and, and whatnot. Right. So, so they re- really sort of politicized it. And so, so I, was, I was very, 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 very into that um, political aspect. And it's much later that I read the autobiography. In fact, I mean, I just devoured every book I could find, a collection of his speeches, and, and I was just totally transformed by all of them. And then event, and everybody used to talk about who who read Malcolm X at the time used to you know rave about the autobiography. I eventually went got around to reading the autobiography, and I mean I understand the power it has on people and so forth. And I mean I'm not an African American, I'm not of African descent, and this is probably uh, has to do with it as well. So it 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 did not uh, connect with me in the same way uh, as his speeches. Uh, the, 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 the speeches has, has a philosophy inside of it that I don't think the autobiography does. And so I, I kind of make this distinction, but, but in your book, I think you, you very rightly and powerfully, um, sort of meld the idea that, you know, the, I don't think you really use the phrase so much that the personal is political, but, but that is, but that is kind of part of it that there's, you know, the, the personal story and, and the life is very much part of of the philosophy. So, so I'd like you to co- kind of comment on on those things about you know, and I think this is more like the first chap. Well, not the first. You have your introduction, but the ontology chapter about what is political philosophy. What is a philosopher? You, you know, you you go into depth into all of this, and I'd like you to expand on that. Yeah, I think you know, I'll, I'll, I think it's important to think about the different ways in which something like that autobiographical sketch will land. And I think your your inclination to think about it with respect to um, identity in that way is probably the way I would parse it as well, right? Because Malcolm's biography lands a certain way with people who grew up in urban African-American spaces at that time, I think, right? Because you, you, you're reading this and you hear places that are familiar. Um, you hear voices that are familiar. And I think that's why it becomes, and that's why I, I designated it as kind of a point of entry, because I think that's what it serves, right? I think, you know, they're all in all this kind of work that's been done post, you know, definitely kind of Manning Marable's work and then what's going on now with some of the more careful analysis of Malcolm's life, that they they all benefit by having that point of departure, I think. And your point about uh, not privileging the written word, particularly in this tradition, I think is is the most important because the way I viewed it and what I describe it as in, in the book is Malcolm is engaged in this kind of thinking in motion. 
that almost precludes the question of kind of sitting down and writing, having an essay practice like the, you know, Baldwin's essay practice or kind of more careful, uh, carefully structured academic practice like some of the other figures, like Du Bois, right? Most obviously who had, you know, produced somewhere around two thousands of written documents, right? So I think Malcolm sits in a very important place uh, in that way and in the tradition, the improvisational tradition. I think when you when you mention the question of music uh, culture, I think what happens is Malcolm's speeches become embedded in popular culture in particular kinds of ways, right? So if you were listening to Public yeah. Enemy in the 80s, you were hearing the voice of Malcolm X, right? Yeah. So it becomes part of popular culture. And then it yeah, takes that, an active effort to kind of extract it back to to. And just to let you know, practice. that was the first time I ever heard Malcolm X's voice, and and they didn't say it was Malcolm X, right? And I said, "Wait, right. is that that has to be him?" I'm sure, you know. And then I would go try to find the speech or where where he said it or, or whatever like that. But yeah, it was it was such an underground kind of a of thing, yeah. But and and another point, I just want to put on. Uh, on your thought about the um, oral tradition and it's important, but I certainly believe uh, that Malcolm X is the greatest orator in the English language period. Uh, you know, people talk about Churchill, uh, you know, Churchill just can't ring with me at all. <laughs> he just can't right. reach my soul. Never. It's just impossible. Um, and, uh, but, I and even you know I have a dream by Martin Luther King is is such a you know inspirational great um, soul lifting speech you 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 can't deny it. it it gives you chills but but still I I just think Malcolm X is the greatest of any English speaker you know I I, I bought the CD the other day of the greatest speeches um, in history or something and Malcolm right. wasn't on there right it's like it's from the UK and it's got like Elizabeth the first and Winston Churchill and my I don't know all these speeches and and I'm like you know Malcolm X needs to be on there <laughs> but, but uh, you know and this is part of the whole you know what you're also getting to um, the decolonization of the, of the canon and whatnot so yeah so please uh, please continue uh, sorry with that interruption but I, I wanted to to have you also comment on that. Yeah, I think it's an appropriate one. I mean, I think I agree. I mean, and I encourage people to not so much read Malcolm X's speeches as go find them and listen to them because first off, he's so funny, right? Like he mm -hmm. has this, he yep. has this kind of biting and at times almost kind of uh, cruel kind of wit, right? Like a kind of yeah. truth telling that I think doesn't come across uh, in, in the, in the reading as much as it does the actual listening and, and the response. Also, it's, it's a, you get to hear kind of the response of the crowd to him, which yeah. I think is critically important as well, right? So yeah. yeah, that kind of too black, too strong that 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 public enemy sample becomes literally people's uh, way of being preoccupied, almost like a background music where Malcolm represents. And that's what I kind of end up with realizing in the book is that everything I was reading, I was reading and studying through the lens of Malcolm X his system of thinking because it had become embedded in, in my cultural awareness in that way. Right. And mm -hmm. that, that sample by public enemy exemplifies that, right? Like it's Malcolm yeah. and some people don't even know it, but that becomes, and then if you think about it, it's like, Oh, it obviously must be him because who else would say that besides Malcolm X. Right. And so yeah. I, that was what was so important for me in, in, in being able to get past, I don't want to use get past as, as kind of a, a hierarchical question, right. To kind of, 
get beyond the question of biography that in ways can overwhelm the text of, of his thinking in a certain way because his life is so interesting, right? And we don't want to get, we don't, it's important to kind of pay attention to both, but then be able to focus, for me, as, as a, a person who wants to work on that tradition, to focus intently on his system of thinking and see what I can extract from that. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and and um, and and the thing that's so important about Malcolm X, which you which you really focus on in the book, uh, you know, about how um, you know the subjectivity, right? Um, how it, it it's about personal transformation as well. It's it, it, you talk about you know um, his philosophy in motion. Um, uh, it's it's personal transformation. I mean, after you know, it was you know it was Malcolm X that awoke me to you know the question of of race and my i and my ethnic identity you know because i was so assimilated uh and uh, and i didn't realize the damage that it did it did to me you know uh, and you know, which is kind of the the feminist um uh argument as well and you know and later on when, when i discovered gandhi for example because i am of of indian um heritage we're from the caribbean but uh, I, um, the, you know, Gandhi was sold as you know nonviolent or, or whatever peaceful. But Gandhi, first and foremost, was a nationalist, right? And um, right. and he, and he and when you read his autobiography, which is incredible, um, my uh, experiments with truth, uh, it's it's so brutally honest, and and it is all about personal transformation as well. There, there's this, um, that you know, and and I've. I there's another uh, person from Trinidad. Uh, I mean, I, I love CLR James and so forth, but I, I want to talk about Naipaul in this respect, who is not considered a political philosopher, but I actually um, used a concept from him in my um, PhD thesis in my my book about politics in Trinidad. Um, but yeah, I I've thought I I think Naipaul has a political philosophy in it uh, in him. And that, he, and I, I've put it in in the form of a question mm-hmm. of he's asking about himself. How do I, as a marginal person from a marginal community in a marginal island, find my way in the world? And this is what I found incredible is that you were doing the same thing and asking about Malcolm X. He said, "How to displace political subjects who are politically and economically marginalized members of a societal order establish themselves as sovereign actors without forming a completely separate and self-authorized system of governance." So in other words, you saw this this personal driving question in Malcolm X. Uh that that guide so people might think he made some wild shifts from Nation of Islam to uh then to um, you know his his own organization and and repudiating and and some sort of disjuncture and break, but but you definitely and rightly see a continuity um, based on on the this driving intensely personal question, and uh, I I just find that in, uh, incredible and and very very illuminating, very very true because I myself don't see that huge break that people like to say between. The nation of Islam and um, and his work afterward. So I, I'd like you to um, comment on on those things because I think you have some uh, you know very important things to say about it. No, I appreciate that, and I think uh, your reference to Naipaul is is appropriate, right? So for me, 
what I what I propose is is just that, right? That that Malcolm the break, the kind of obvious, uh, you know, day to day break with the Nation of Islam was one thing. But I what I was trying to be careful to do was to make sure I situated what was Malcolm's first philosophy and the thing that he that that statement that you read from the book, right? Is mm-hmm. is I, I worked. I can't tell you how many times I like tried to craft get that sentence together, right? Because I'm like, yeah. this is this has to be the thing that yeah. uh, imp- it inspires everything that he's doing, and Absolutely. even his relationship to to it, to the Nation of Islam as a as an institution was secondary to his to his desire to resolve that problem, right? How does mm-hmm. he situate himself as himself and then collectively, right, as an exemplar for a type of 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 practice for black people at first black people, most obviously, but then what he then describes black people as a type of, of, of situatedness with respect mm-hmm. to white supremacist power. How do you find yourself in that space? Right. And what, and, and not only to find yourself, but then to create a position of stability, because it's yes. one thing to, to radically destabilize um, the subject, right? That's what I think Fanon is up to in, in black skin, white mask and Fanon is up to in rest of the earth in two different ways, right? And, Black skin, white mm-hmm. mask. He's destabilizing the the psychological makeup of the colonized subject, right? Kind of what you said about the damage that's done to the subject by being preoccupied and and and, and assimilated into white supremacist ways of thinking. Mm-hmm. That's one system of destabilization. The other is a type of political destabilization where you actually attack the system of governance governance that informs that type of practice. What Malcolm is doing is trying to resolve both those questions. And figure out just how, and, and his perception, a practical perception, of the the almost geographic spatial impossibility of carving out a new nation state in the, in the mid to late twentieth century on planet Earth without displacing some other subjects, right? And I think that's really important to understand that he he gets that right, like he understands that in order to to begin to, he doesn't want to get involved in projects of, of imperialism, right? Or displacing mm-hmm. other subjects to find a space for the displaced. And so he's, what, what I begin to think of, he begins to view the body as the actual space of political praxis for diasporic Black people or those similarly situated, where the, the body becomes a type of political, a transportable political space that can resolve itself positively through its own sovereign relationship to other types of political perceptions. That that's a very 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 uh, interesting and important argument, and and I want to dwell on it a little more. Um, I I think it's very it's uh, you know you you're starting off some from some very important places and going to even more important places. So let's just start off with the idea of a stable subjectivity. You know, uh, in in this series and with other people I, I've spoken to, something that that always comes up is the way Malcolm X transforms people, just utterly transforms them. I mean, my whole life was transformed by reading Malcolm X. I'm a totally different person because of it and the choices I've made, where I live. The fact, because I, I, I grew up in Canada, I was born in the States, but I left there. I could not live there anymore after having my consciousness opened. Um, it, it, I, I, I honestly just, just could not live there. And, and coming to... To Trinidad, where my you know my family is from, and and everything, um, I, it, it's been so important. You know, it, it's it's related to Fanon's thing about the community kind of psychology coming back 
into you know be, being reintegrated and um and and this being up there i I just, I just find it, and and I must say, you know, the, I I believe the life of of an immigrant up in those countries is is one of of constant schizophrenia, right? And 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 you have this instability in your subjectivity. Now, right. the difference is being from an immigrant family. Now, from a descendant of a slave, African Americans, that's that's just a, a whole other layer now, you know, and it's uh, you know. Of of the the four hundred years of 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 oppression and and the and that whole history, um, so the, that is something I I want to to talk uh, I want you to ex, expand on more and 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 the because I in in one sense right so the body becoming the political space that that's extremely important and even in places like India for example right because. Right. Um, I'm not f- from India, and our family's been out of India for for six generations. We've been here since the 19th century, so so there's this funny relationship with India as well, right? But in India, like Gandhi himself, he had to reorient himself because he was so assimilated, right? And so he was wearing suits and wanted to be a lawyer and and was a lawyer and all that, and then he took it all off and just wore a loincloth and started to read the Gita and, and, and immerse himself in, in Indian culture where he was, you know, so, so yes, so, so that becomes very important, but the question, and you have a whole chapter on it, on the geography that I think is so important because, um, because, you know, and, and then I think, you know, the NFAC, the Not Fucking Around Coalition has come up. I just right. found that extremely interesting that the issue is coming up again. I think it's something that will not go away. And, and you know, when Spike Lee and stuff w- was coming up in the late 80s and, and, and the, that whole cultural nationalism and public enemy, I've, I've sometimes wondered, you know, how much is that cultural nationalism, a kind of... Um, stopgap effort because the political geographical nationalism just seems unattainable but then how do you um, negotiate uh you know that uh in the meanwhile or or if ever because i mean will there ever be a an afro-american state on the continent there i'm i i don't know it doesn't look possible now but who knows what will happen in the future you know so so there there are these questions that i that you do um look at uh in the book and i'd like you to expand on it because i think they're so you know they're very very interesting yeah so i thought it was like really critically important to deal with this question of what does malcolm x mean by black nationalism because one of the ways in which a certain type of intellectual practice will seek to marginalize Malcolm X's thinking is to propose that he's actually a type of idiosyncratic uh, pie in the sky person proposing some, you know, uh, nation state that is impossible to kind of pull off. Right. So therefore, mm-hmm. why should we listen to anything that he says? And it's, it's more complicated than that. And that's why. Right. When he when he says black minded and it's important, the reason that that became the the title of the book is because he's asked by a person, an interlocutor. He's like, what happened to the back to Africa movement? And Malcolm says that he's become he wants to become black minded enough to have one of several things happen. Right. The first that he and everyone else 
similarly situated diaspora black people will be willing to kind of pack up and leave the uh, Western societal order and and go back to Africa. Second, mm-hmm. that they will become so disruptive to white supremacist uh, systems of governance that they'd actually be expelled from Western societal order and have to go there. But in lieu of that, he wants to be black minded enough to be able to process information and somehow uh, allude to the fact of that type of stabilized thinking, if not the actual practice of it. Yeah. And so from that perspective, then the body becomes all you have, right? And I think yeah. your your point about the six generations and the difference between uh, the and just just call it the, the middle passage, right? That that this is mm-hmm. this is the door of no return becomes just that, right? The kind of impossibility of a coherent relationship to Africa, right? We've seen this in the Negritude movement. We've seen it with the kind of Afrocentric movement, where mm-hmm. uh, Egypt becomes this kind of mythological touchstone for creating a type of positive Black identity. Malcolm understands all of that, right? And even the 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 cosmogony of the Nation of Islam proposed this kind of, you know, mythological relationship of, of Black subjectivity to the world, right? And and mm-hmm. and similarly, this kind of weird way in which uh, white people are created, that whole thing, right? These kind of mythological systems that, that are designed to give a subject that has nothing something, right? Yeah. And what, yeah. what Malcolm centers on is that something has to be your body. Right. And because right. of, it's an embodied practice, it also becomes important for him to protect the body. And mm-hmm. so his system of where, where Malcolm X is then cordoned off in many ways in the same way that Fernand will be cordoned off into this kind of purveyor of violence, that also is not true. What he's mm-hmm. saying is that the body as the only thing that, that the subject has needs to be protected. And that system of protection can be taken in various kinds of ways. But at the end of the day, it's most important that that living be the most imp- be the primary philosophical position and desire of these bodies to stabilize themselves in any kind of political space, and that can be done through uh, physical violence at its most extreme, and also through something like legal violence, where he wants to employ the United Nations, the World Court, and and those types of institutions in order to secure the body that he's concerned about. So. That's the way in which it is what I call an embodied practice. His his the corporeality of, of Malcolm X's philosophical position is related inextricably to this question of geographic space and the lack yeah. of, of geographic space that doesn't encroach upon the subjectivity of others in, in order to find that space. Yeah, yeah. That's you know, uh, that's it's it's these are are excellent um uh points and doors you're opening here, you know. Um this whole idea of a stable subjectivity, it it's um and and that finding that stability in the body, that is so, so important. Um and I I think you know, you, you talk about the uh, City Desk interview in nineteen sixty three, which is such an amazing especially that little clip where they're trying to make him say um the slave name. Uh it it's just such an incredible, powerful little moment of I don't know, two minutes maybe. Um, but where he just refuses uh, to play along with it. And, and you know what I think the most powerful point in it is as, as soon as he starts, he, he, he says, excuse me for answering like this. 
And right. then the the uh, the host says, "Oh no, no, that's okay." And then you know the guy on his uh, Malcolm's immediate left uh, is is looking at him, smiling, um, and and knowing that you know he's absolutely right. And Malcolm is saying this with no hostility, with with perfect, total, absolute mastery of himself, of right. his of his body, of his mind, of his soul. It's 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 just a wonder to watch, right? I mean every almost every interview is like that. His his absolute um control is 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 just incredible. He is obviously a stable person. You, you know Absolutely. he 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 has he has mastered himself and um and you know, you know, and you know, you raising these things now has has sort of uh, put some some other things together, which I'd like you to comment on. Like, for instance, you know, one of the the two books I believe that uh, the Honorable Elijah wrote. I think it's only two that he has, and one that he actually wrote. The other is, I think, just a collection. Um, Message to the Black Man. Yeah. Um, I can't remember if he wrote that, but the other one is How to Eat to Live, right? I mean, exactly. I, I just I just found that the first time I said, wow, is, that's amazing that, um, you know, of the two books, one of them is on your diet. But mm-hmm. what it is, is it's about your body, isn't it? Do you want to um, expand on that? Yeah, I mean, I think that's exactly, you know, your point is was kind of gets to my first awareness of the Nation of Islam, right? So it was more about bean pies and not eating pork than it was. And that becomes a kind of system of political awareness. Yeah. Right? So what that then meant was that was a thick concept that then spoke to all kinds of other things that had to do with what they wear, right? The way they present themselves, right? That's the, right. The, the kind of, excuse me for saying this, while you're basically cutting the person's entire argument off, right? You're, you're right. apologizing for making a fool out of these people. And this is the kind of March, I think it's March 17th, 1963, City mm-hmm. Desk interview, right? Where Malcolm... Yeah. And you describe it exactly as it happens, right? They want to force to destabilize his stable subjectivity. And what Malcolm is, is he's he's comfortable being uncomfortable. Yes. And he becomes, yes. he's able to sit there in the middle of this coercive uh, force that's approaching him, right? And it's, it's everything about white supremacy that they can muster, right? Demanding of him to answer for himself. Uh, requiring for him to say a particular name. He won't do it. And yeah. what he's doing is staking out a firm uh, ontological position. And he's saying that I have defined myself and you will not, there's nothing you can do to force me to 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 back off of that definition. And so Malcolm becomes, and this is why what I said about Ali for me was so important because then it, I began to understand what it was about Ali that attracted my attention in that way, right? Because mm-hmm. Ali, in many ways, on a much, uh, I don't know if the stage is bigger per se, but it's a different type, obviously, in certain ways, right? The heavyweight champion of the world. But when Muhammad Ali basically tells white people to shut up, right? Yeah. And tells them that that he's not going to, to be told certain things, right? It's what Malcolm is doing and, and situating the possibility. He creates the space of that possibility. And and for us to be able to, us broadly considered, right, uh, any marginalized subject that, that faces white supremacist violence, whether physical violence or uh, subject violence, right, self-destructive, the kind of destructive violence of, of the subject that, that white supremacy at its most evolved is so effective at producing, right, the system of, of not trusting yourself, right, not believing 
in your own perception of the world, forcing yourself to think about yourself in different kinds of ways. Malcolm is is fighting his entire uh, intellectual life and likely his entire biographical life to to refute that exact exact position. Yeah, and, and then he, at the end, he says, "I never acknowledge it whatsoever," and he smiles. <laughs> it's right, just perfect, ever, right? Ever. <laughs> He just says, I never acknowledge it. And then they shift, you know, and it, it's, it's, uh, they have a tag team, right? Of these kinds of, you know, obviously when you watch this now, right, these kind of inferior intellects, right, who have no business talking to Malcolm X in this way. Yeah. Right? Like, yeah. 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 So, so inferior to his, his, his intellectual practice that it's, it's basically, he's like sitting there talking to, it's as if you take some, you know, some Nobel laureate and, and it's talking to some pre literate person right who has no yeah. idea even what they're thinking of Malcolm like on Facebook it's like arguing with some idiot on Facebook right and, and he but he says I'm sorry for doing this to you basically mm-hmm. but it has to be done and that's who for me that's Malcolm at his most evolved system of thinking he's he's performing the entire uh process of his philosophical system in his personal and physical comportment and that which you mentioned about uh, the Honorable Elijah Muhammad's preoccupation with taking care of the body in that way, right, becomes also the kind of economic system of Black nationalism, where mm-hmm. it's to protect even the system of food delivery also mm-hmm. becomes a, a way in which uh, the stable, the, the subject is able to render itself stable in an environment that's always trying to destabilize it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and like the the discipline, the you know, the the austerity, you know, the, the eating one meal a day, right? And all, all this kind of stuff. It, it's just uh, it's 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 about self mastery. It, it it's very very important. It's a very important insight you have there. And um, you, you know, and well, you know, one of the reasons you, your uh, book, just the, the title uh, in and of itself, just just struck me so much too was. You know, like on my bookshelf, I, I organize my books according to theme or whatever, right? But I, I don't follow the standard. Um, uh, I, I don't follow the standard organization uh, exactly, right? So I do like have like maybe a sociology section, American studies section, okay. a political theory section, or whatever. And I have Malcolm X and all all his speeches in my political theory section. I have him like next to you know, Hobbes and uh, the Fabian collection and all right. this kind of stuff, right? I've, I've, I've always been clear that he's a political philosopher, right? It's not, a, uh, and, and so that is, so that uh, really intrigued me uh, about how you, you really, you know, you flesh it out in a, in a whole book. I, I just think it's so amazing. And you, you kind of summarize it, I think, and tell me if, if I'm right in, in your uh, chapter on ontology, when you say it's, Basically, recovering black identity. It's like so, if if you had to break it down, right, and now to articulate what this is, so it's recovering black identity, establishing a sustainable subjectivity, bridging the gap between civil and human rights, and developing a national project. Is 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 that it? Is is that how you'd say that is his um you know philosophical system? Yeah, I think that for me that that's how it basically presents itself. And so much of it is resonant with, you know, the kind of prototypes of, of revolutionary thinking, right? Mm-hmm. So if you think about the French Revolution, right, which becomes in many, is exemplified, or I don't know, 
is is idealized in certain kinds of ways, right? The, the problem with mm-hmm. the French Revolution is it it was always unstable, yeah. Right. So when when Saint Jude writes to Robespierre, it's like, when will the revolution end? And he says never, because they can't mm-hmm. figure out how to stop it. That's right. right. And so what Malcolm is is trying to do is figure out how to find a notion of identity that becomes stable even in in systems of instability. Yeah. And that to me is a is is a contemporary question of uh, black subjectivity, particularly, and any type of subaltern subjectivity generally. Yeah. Whether that's questions of gender, whether that's questions of sexual preference, whether that's questions of of race or ethnicity or uh, religious mm-hmm. identity. It's always the question of how can you, in a world that has become ever more global and and to be able to distance yourself effectively from other parts of, of uh, other systems of power becomes more difficult in the world we live in. How do you find a space of, 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 of uh, stable existence and even contentment, right? How can you be happy, That's right? Because right. in many ways, when we examine something like the Black radical political tradition, it bec- something like uh, fun or something like humor becomes something that you think you can't even get to because you're so busy. And I've said it, Yes, being context, mad. Right? You're being you're just mad yeah, all the time. Mad all the time, right? <laughs> because because trying to stay alive gets in the way of living, right? Yeah. Like you're so busy trying to keep yourself just alive that you can't bear life, right? Thinking with Agamben in that way, right? Just the bareness of life becomes uh unaccountable to possibilities beyond that. So you gotta deal with questions of love, you gotta deal with questions of humor, you gotta deal with questions of, of just just happiness. And so Malcolm is 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 working as 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 hard as he can and as little and with the little amount of time that he has to do it to try to resolve that question for himself and then be able to present that as a system that allows across different uh, space spatial temporal um, ways of being to then use that as a way to to resolve yourself positively in, in some type of coercive space. Yeah, th- that's a really important insight. Yeah, I mean, how it's it's really just just how to be a normal human in in a, in an environment that's uh, marginalizing you and and dehumanizing you, and it, it, in one sense it's 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 universal and and simple in a sense. I mean, we all have a struggle to do it, and it's like you know just just kind of the old Greek saying, "Know thyself," but right. knowing thyself. In the in, in a in a country in a system in a civilization that is not yours becomes extremely it's it, it's a revolutionary act in and of itself because because the society does not know you or yourself cannot teach you about yourself and you have to discover that on your own and yeah yeah I I think that's um that I think those are really really important points uh, you bring up. I, I want to about knowing the self is just uh, just one quick statement. Sure, yeah. Care, knowing the self is so important because the other thing that the Oracle of Delphi also said was care of the self. That's right. right? And so self care, mm-hmm. back to your point about the body, right, and this notion of, of what's important, right? Self care becomes almost the 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 step before knowing the self, right? You can't know the self if you're not caring for the self, right? So Malcolm is really into black people loving themselves. You know the the notion of of knowing the self is in many ways pre is presaged by or only depended upon what what the other part of the oracle is to to care for the self, and so that speaks to your point about 
the importance of, of taking care of the body that's exemplified by the Honorable Elijah Muhammad's book that's just about that, right? How do you care for the body? And so what Malcolm X is up to is trying to develop a system of thinking that allows you to care for yourself, to love yourself, right? As as a marginalized, a formerly marginalized subject, we call the, the so-called Negro, right? Yeah. He's, he's basically saying, don't allow this to be the only thing that you know about yourself because you need to love yourself. And so he situates something like joy in the midst of all of this, this problematic, right? It's important to unearth that Malcolm is, is really talking about a system of, of joyful self-subjectivity. And that comes from caring for the self and knowing the self at the same time. Yeah, that that's really important. Uh, you, you touched on a couple of things there. Um, uh, one, the idea of the so-called Negro. I, I think that, that that's it's a very uh, important point you you keep coming back to, uh, and it, it's it's a really good thing that you're unpacking that because yes, the so-called Negro, the so-called Negro, that is such a, a constant constant trope. It, it's so packed full of of kind of unspoken meaning in a sense. Uh, it, it has so much in it, and then the other thing um, is I, I wanted to just. Uh, uh, expand to a little on on the thing about being joyful. Um, I remember uh, Norman Gervin, who's a Jamaican uh, political economist and philosophical in a sense, part of the New World Group, uh, which which I um, eventually also became a part of. And when I was in Jamaica and Trinidad and in Trinidad now and whatnot, but. He, he had this this great critique of development theory in 1992, which I am so sad has not um, become more widely known throughout the world. Um, later on, some other people kind of appropriated some ideas and became published by Zed and uh, books and, and whatever, the development dictionary. But, um, but, but yeah, Norm was talking about how he was working with uh, some uh, development agency. I can't remember what it was because could be some UN agency, could be some UNICEF thing, could be some NGO, but uh, uh, somewhere in Mexico, and the uh, one of the observers from the uh, from the team was saying it was a poor rural village somewhere, saying you know, um, uh, you know, and and they were kind of despairing, saying you know, even after these this delivery of aid that we're giving right now, you know, and it 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 lasts them for a little while, it's going to run out. And they're still going to be poor, and, and I think one of the the villagers overheard and said, um, "You know, we're not poor. Uh, you know, no, we're we're not poor. We're um, uh, what, what, whatever the name of the village was, like like right. let's say, yeah, and, and and you know, we're villagers. Uh, I I can't remember what the name, but but in other words, your identity was not by your poverty. It was not sure. by your deprivation, and that you know." You're a human being that that lives life and has joys and sorrows. I, Dave Chappelle, uh, in his um, SNL uh, monologue recently, just after the election in the U.S., had had this great thing at the end talking about you know um, how to find happiness even in you know you know what others would see as um, as as sorrow you know economic deprivation material right. deprivation right my own parents and 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 grandparents and whatnot you know lived in in very very um you know meager meager 
existence and poverty in, in Trinidad and Tobago and so forth. But they were so happy, much happier than people in the first world with all this, you know, uh, technology and, and whatnot. So, yes, f- so this finding joy, I think, is so important. Um, it is part of, of having the subjectivity, and it is a radical project. Um, and you rightly, rightly uh, bring that to the fore, and, and I think that that's very important. And, and it is related to this kind of so-called Negro, right? Because that's about changing the subjectivity. So I'd like you to um, expand on that first, please. Yeah, I mean, I think this question of, of joyful existence and your point about the not being encumbered by poverty, right? Toni Morrison says this in, in the documentary that came out just before she passed, right? She talks about growing up what is would be empirically poor, but not even really knowing it, right? Yeah. Like it didn't, yeah. it didn't matter in that sense, right? Because there was an entire system of, of positive existence deep inside what I like to and I think about in the book, right, this question of deep inside the black imaginary, right, where it's this real mm-hmm. space that's that's untouchable in some ways by the external forces of white supremacy, except of the necessity of, ex- of its existence, right? Yeah. Malcolm is struggling to come up with a way to kind of produce that as a steady state of being, right? And yes. and what I do in the book, and the most obvious, there's an image that I, that I use of, of Malcolm X and Muhammad Ali at the uh, Hampton House Hotel in Miami. This is the subject of, of uh, the new documentary that's out, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Where in 1964, after he wins the heavyweight championship of the world, where they create this kind of phantasmagora, right? This this uniquely black safe space where white people, literally white police officers are literally pushed to the margins and can't be a, a primary position anymore, which which then refutes the, the possibility of, of Negro-ness that he's concerned with, right? This is this is yeah. Baldwin's I'm not your Negro routine, right? Like, and he's what he's emphasizing is that the, the notion of the Negro is a creation of white supremacy in order to secure itself by by having a subject that's beneath it. And he's he's working as as quickly as he can to kind of demonstrate the, the way to refute that. Is through a system of, of, of radical self-awareness and also radical self-critique. Because, and, and this is back to your question, your point about Malcolm's oratory, he's nothing if not a truth teller. And he tells painful truths about black respectability, respectability politics, about like people will listen to Malcolm's speeches and be like, wow, how can you talk about Martin Luther King or the Southern Christian Leadership Conference like that? Or the even the March on Washington, right? He has this kind of harsh critique. Yeah. of the, the co-ops, the way in which the March on Washington was co-opted, right? He's like, it was supposed to be a, a mass strike, right? To shut down mm-hmm. Washington, D.C., to occupy even the runways to prevent planes from landing. And it became a walk back and forth between what he says is two old white men between Washington yeah. and Lincoln. A dead man named a dead, <laughs> a yeah, dead man named Exactly, right? It's kind of humor, right? But what he's doing is, and, and that's what I think is, is, is so important about the 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 point that you're you're pushing us to think carefully about. And it's really valuable to be able to understand even internal to uh, a revolutionary system of thought, joy becomes, or the possibility of joy becomes for me, the actual practice of it. Right. Yeah. And, and Malcolm is engaged, you know, it's kind of, you know, and, and even the, the tagline for the book, right. Malcolm, it says in, in the, the promo for this book, is like Malcolm was known as the angriest man in, in America. Right. And yeah, 
he's mad about all kinds of stuff. But also at the same time, Malcolm, that picture of Malcolm X smiling is so important, right? Yeah, he and is hilarious, just, as you yeah, say. He's just to so see that, witty. He's so right? funny. Just to see him laughing, right? And people will say this, right? James Baldwin talks about just Malcolm X laughing. Maya Angelou says the same thing, right? Ozzie uh, Davis. Yeah, right. Ozzie Davis, they talk about his laughter, right? even yeah. in the face of all this, right? And it's almost uh, becomes everything that it, it portends everything that it's supposed to. And I think that's what being black-minded is all about, right? To be able to exist in a space that allows a type of radical critique of the self and the, and the system that has, has established itself, but at the same time be able to find a space of joy that that's then becomes the, the place to create a new type of positive political and social existence. Yeah, you know, I mean, I'm I'm also a fan of Nietzsche as well, and 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 Nietzsche yeah. has uh, you know spoken about you know that uh, laughter, uh, you know, if if a, if a philosopher cannot laugh, then he won't listen to them, right? Or or he 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 doesn't believe in a god that does not dance, you know, this type of thing. It, it's it's a very very similar thing, I think. And I mean, I brought in Nietzsche here, and right. um, and I want to talk. Uh, about you know the the dialogue that you you do have um, that you do bring Malcolm X into with uh, people who are uh, more formally and non controversially thought of as philosophers like you know um, Sartre um, Hegel and then and then you, you, Du Bois you know who, who's written so many uh, things as well um, Audre Lorde um, you know and so so you have um, brought in and Fanon of course. Um, so you have brought brought um, Malcolm X in dialogue with these um, other thinkers. Uh, could you just uh, tell us, you know, some of the you know, more uh, interesting and important things uh, that you um, have looked at in your book in this regard? Yeah, I mean, I think this was, and you talked about this initially, right? The question of whether Malcolm, what is the question is what is political philosophy, mm-hmm. and for me, what I was trying to do in that in that section is to say, okay, this is what we understand as political philosophy. And this is the reason why Malcolm X is a political philosopher. And then I even had to be positively instructed afterwards because Fred Moten reviewed the book and he said, and in his review, he's like, that it doesn't so much give Malcolm X his rightful place in the canon of political philosophy, so much as raise political philosophy to a height it never dared to reach. So he's mm-hmm. saying that political philosophy had to get to Malcolm, not the other way That's around. right. Right. And so and I think that's probably right. So when I when I'm dealing with and I and I say in the book consciously, I situate Malcolm both temporally, uh, geographically, spatially, intellectually as between as the bridge between Du Bois and Fennon. Right. This is kind of tra- position of translation of Du Bois's uh, American in many ways, American romanticism. Right. He's a person who grew up in 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 Great Great Barrier. Massachusetts. So he's a romantic in that tradition, right? That, that's working through these questions of black subjectivity and a person who leaves the Caribbean and ends up running around Algeria as, as, uh, as an insurgent and as a psychiatrist, Fanon. what he's doing is bridging those two kind of complicated systems of thinking. And in doing so, he's pulling in all the, the thinkers that, that, that those two people are involved with in their conscious practice, right? Because Malcolm X is not it was had, did not attend school, right? He was not a person who sat down and had mm-hmm. conversations with Sartre in the way and Merleau-Ponty in the way that 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 Fanon did. And so, when he's dealing with 
these systems of thinking, he's taking up the questions that are important to 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 Lacan or Hegel or Nietzsche. And, and he's doing that through his engagement and existence as the black body that becomes what I what I characterize in the book in some ways is this as almost an instrument of 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 access to, to systems of thinking that vibrates in a certain way when it encounters these systems of, of white supremacist thinking or the core of kind of white supremacy, right? So when Hegel proposes in his philosophy of history that the that the African and the sub-Saharan African is a non-historical being, that's what Malcolm X is deconstructing. When when uh, Sartre is thinking about this question of, of primary and secondary awareness of the self, that's what Malcolm X is processing, right? When Du Bois is saying something like, what do we understand of second sight, double consciousness and Tunis, where Tunis becomes the impossibility of resolving the American and the Negro within the black body, that's the space that Malcolm X is working in. When Malcolm is taking up the question of, of how violence is represented and put pulling down the barrier of something between pulling down the barrier between violent and nonviolent systems of protest or radical political activity, he's he's basically helping to resolve the central question of, of the opening chapter of Wretched of the Earth, right? Where where uh Fanon is struggling with this question of how do we understand violence and what is its end towards something like the new humanism. Malcolm's involved in, in is involved with resolving all of those questions for me. And so that was what I thought is the kind of thorough uh, way through the book that back to kind of our initial position, the central problematic is what I didn't want to do is do like a hermeneutics or exegesis of in, in, in temporal fashion of all of his speeches, right? Then the book's mm-hmm. six or 700 pages long. And I don't think it, it, for me, it wouldn't be as useful as trying to chart the actual uh, categories that he's dealing with from a philosophical perspective and in, in a temporal fashion, seeing how he's drawing these things in across his, his, his political and activist life to assemble a coherent system of philosophy that can be read and should be read in the same, you know, it should be in your, where you have it in your bookshelf to, to resolve okay. your question, right? The kind of spatiality of your bookshelf that puts him in with political theorists of the first rank. He is, he is a political theorist of the first rank. And for my money, probably one of the most important ones of the 20th century. And Absolutely. period. There's, mm-hmm. there's no, and I don't think there's any, I, I, I would, I would be interested in entertaining arguments against that and, and being able to dispute them and, and show categorically how he actually is the real thing when it comes to a systematic, uh, complex philosophical thinker. Absolutely. I, I 1000% agree with that. Yeah. I, I, um, a couple, I mean, there's, there's tons of questions I want to go to, but I have to pare them down. So let, so let me see. One other thing I'd like you to comment on is right, because Malcolm X's life was, was so short and uh, so full of, of um, you know, ideas and energy and information and stuff, and, and, and it, it has been taken in, in many different directions. And some of these different directions I'd like you to, to comment on because, you know, I mean, yes, definitely the, the Black Power movement and the Panthers and, and and that kind of stuff is the air, yes. But th- but there are other things as well. Like, so, you know, two other stuff that came about in, let's say, the 80s and then the 90s. So let's say the, the 80s, I believe it was the 80s um, or the early 90s, when Clarence Thomas. I, I remember <laughs> the first time when, you know, it was revealed that 
that Clarence Thomas said, you know, he was a great admirer of Malcolm X. I mean, right. um, I, I didn't understand it. But later on, you know, I and and as I stand right now, I, I do understand it very, very well. And, and I think it is I think it is perfectly legitimate. Uh, but I'd, I'd like to hear your view on that, as well as the heritage stamp uh, issue and um, and what Malcolm X would have thought of that as well. So, so uh, yeah, so, I mean, the, the Black Power stuff is pretty obvious, but, right. but, you know, but what about this other stuff, like Clarence Thomas, the stamp? Uh, yeah, I'd like to hear your views on that. Yeah, I, mean, I think the Clarence Thomas thing, and I, I'm, I don't know if I'm one of the few people, but I actually read Clarence Thomas's biography back in the early mm. 2000s. I don't know when this book came out, right? And there's this, so Clarence Thomas, to me, is is a prototype of, like he needs he needs Malcolm in ways that that he really can't even grasp, right? Like right. so his entire you know growing up in Gullah, right, in in the barrier yeah. islands outside of South Carolina, where he had to learn or have his even linguistic tradition accepted as he doesn't even accept it himself. It's like a legitimate, which is exactly what Malcolm is saying, right? You're you're existing in a marginalized political space and subjective subjective space. It's only about white supremacist perceptions of you as a subject. Right. Mm-hmm. So in college, when when Clarence Thomas was at Holy Cross, he goes to this kind of system of where he's radicalized in a certain way, gets himself in trouble in some march in Boston, ex, and, you know, that kind of thing. Right. Mm-hmm. But then the Clarence Thomas that we're treated to now is busily running around trying to construct around him uh, what I think are systems of safety that have nothing to do with actual safety, but only the perception that I can become a kind of. Uh, I being Clarence Thomas voicing him. Mm-hmm. Clarence yeah. Thomas, Thomas can exist in a space that allows him to pretend like he understands that that white people will like him if if only he refutes the same things that they're refuting about black existence, right? And so then he gloms on in reductive fashion, gloms on to things that Malcolm would say about uh, self-reliance, personal responsibility, and uses them as weapons against the very people that he's trying to, that Malcolm, he being Malcolm is trying to, to, to save with those statements. Right. So a a person like Clarence Thomas is, is dangerous in the sense that he'll take, and this is, I think, if I understand the direction of your question, right, the way Malcolm can be misused or co-opted is exactly in that fashion because he has a a very careful critique of, of black people. Right. And it's meant to be just that, but it's not without, it's also not without coherent relationship to the facticity of black life. Right. And so yeah. what a person like Clarence Thomas wants to do is to blame the victim of white supremacy for their positionality without taking account of the things that have happened that caused that position. Right. And Malcolm is saying, I get it. Right. We shouldn't have crime in our community. We shouldn't have prostitution. We shouldn't have drug abuse. But I understand where these things come from. And he's dealing with both of those questions at the same time, while a person, an irresponsible person like Clarence Thomas is busily trying to only focus on what he thinks is the fault of, of black people for their own plight. I'll tell you. I'll tell you my view about where I think Clarence Thomas uh, goes wrong. Um, I think that he does not have the national. um, How how do you call it? Developing a national project. So, so he he doesn't have that national project, and that's the problem because, in a sense, he's using it for assimilation. Right. And, you know, and, 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 and that is where he falls and that is where it falls down. I think that, so you, you need those, those four pillars as, as you, um, have them. 
uh, to to fully do it. And 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 once you you take away that um, that autonomy, um, which I would say is is kind of synonymous in a sense with the with the national project. Um, then yeah, then then you get into this um, yeah, in in into the problems that uh, right absolutely. That, and and I I I want us to speak about that national project a, a little more. And I, okay, so let's speak to it through the heritage stamp, right? Okay. Uh, because because there's two things there. There's one where he's kind of where Malcolm X is now seen as a civil rights leader. And he's right. put in the civil rights discourse, which I think it does great violence to his um, thought and action and life, um, and and greatly misunderstands it, neuters him, and uh, and and really dilutes what, what everything he stood for, in my view. Um, but I but I, I like the quote you have from your uncle there. I I, I think um, it makes it 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 does make a, a lot of sense, and um, yeah, and and so then. So is Malcolm to be incorporated into the American pantheon or right. is there a distinct national project? Yeah. So please, I'd like to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny because this is a kind of serendipity. My uncle, uh, John Sawyer, was actually on the stamp committee that that helped to to create the kind of heritage stamp, that heritage stamp uh, series and, and the Malcolm X stamp in particular. So, you know, it, this is again, back to this is public enemy, right? Where they say most of my yeah. heroes don't appear on no stamp, right? Except now Malcolm yeah. X is on a stamp, right? That's right. And, and, and the question becomes, what do we make? Or is, for me, the question is not so much what do we make of it, but what would Malcolm X make of him being on a stamp, right? He yeah. would he would be, you know, and this is, you know, this is irresponsible some cinema, but I feel like it's, it's, it's fun to do it in some way, right? He would just find it to be predictable in some way. Yeah. Right. Because yeah. in many ways, it's the same thing that he's describing as what what happens if you're not careful with the march on Washington. That was meant to be this day of of, of radical destabilization of the the mechanisms of governance that then becomes co opted by it. So yeah. in many ways, if we're not careful, the appearance of Malcolm X on a stamp can be used to to defang the the radicalism that's so important and his his mission and principle, which is to say that that there's nothing that he thinks the United States government can, can get right um, as a practical matter. But he also has a practical political project that says we're going to have to use, this is the master's tools question, right? We're going to have to use those mechanisms of power in order to secure ourselves in a certain kind of way. So -hmm. the stamp becomes uh, both a, a proper, I think it's both a proper memorial of Malcolm and at the same time, something that we have to be conscious of, to be careful of what that symbolism and iconography can portend for radical political projects. Right, right. Yeah, I, I think uh, you were, yeah, I, I saw an interview, I think George Galloway did with you, and he was talking yeah. about how Bill Clinton was jogging with a Malcolm X hat on. a Malcolm on. X hat on, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and funny, because and then he was with Castro yeah. and saw <laughs> Bill Clinton run out of the hotel with that. All right? It's like, it's kind of weird. But, you know, that's a show all of it in its own, right? Like George Galloway with yeah. Castro watching Bill Clinton running a Malcolm X hat, right? <laughs> exactly. But it, back to that point, right? It becomes, Malcolm becomes, uh, he can, Malcolm X improperly employed can become a tool against positive Blacks' identity, which right. is, which I think is, is 
if there's a message that I would hope that the book presents is, is to close off that possibility uh, for people who think carefully about this and, right. and to say that that's not something that we can be using Malcolm X to do and to humiliate black people. Right, right. Now, let me just um, return for a last time, I suppose, to the geographic space issue. Um, yep. I, um, you know, I, I personally believe that, you know, Afro-Americans are a nation um, within the United States and, um, you know, culturally, historically and geographically. The geographical argument is, is one that I came to kind of late. Uh, even though I, and I had no idea how how much it had been developed, uh, like in the 1930s by the communists actually, and the black belt and their whole uh, self determination for the black belt. That geographically, you know, the, it's areas where you know African Americans are. I, I don't know if it's 50 percent, but but certainly you know, uh, if not an actual majority, very very close to one. And you know, and and you ha- you have your core territory, your your border territory, and uh, it it is a, a geographical reality as well, you know, as a cultural and historical one. You know, I mean, even I, I remember I have some family in Minnesota, right? So that's the whole kind of what the Scandinavian, you know, uh, part of the immigrant nineteenth century immigration to the United States and and, right. and whatnot, right? And they have their accents and everything. And then I remember on the bus, um, uh, there were some, you know, some black um, people, not Somalians, African Americans, descendants of slaves, right? um, there, and and the way they, right? So everybody else who I was seeing was kind of having this Minnesota American accent, right? Right. However, but then when you know when you know these uh, black uh, Minnesotans were were there on the bus where I was at. It would stay spoke totally different. It's a nation language, you know. It it, sure. it just reinforced to me that's the nation language, you know. And and it's 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 and it is tied to West Indian English as well because of the way you know a lot of the states went to Jamaica first, and then from uh, they were seasoned in Jamaica and then went up, you know. Uh, so that whole Black Atlantic link, link is so important. Malcolm right. X too, you know, mothered Grenadian. All those connections are so important. Stokely from Trinidad here, CLR James, whatever, Garvey, Jamaica. But um, yeah, um, yeah. The, but but the black belt idea, right, is uh, is incredible. And uh, the Atlanta seems to be the capital of Black America, right? So the, the, there seems to be a de facto thing. You have the Chitlin Circuit, right? You you, you have all yeah. these things there, right? Um, but what what is your view uh, about? Uh, about that do you think uh, yeah I'd, I'd like to hear what your thoughts on it i mean and so my kind of personal example is is useful here for me right like so i grew up yeah. on, a, on the south side in the hundreds right 112 and, uh-huh. and a street one block off of the longest street in the city of chicago halsey street right and right. i didn't i knew i lived in chicago i thought white people lived in a different city right i grew up so far inside of uh, black societal order, where at the time in the seventies we had our own stores, we had our own restaurants, we had everything. Yeah. There was no reason we encountered white people only. My parents would encounter them at work, but only at the margins, right? Yeah. And so inside of that perception, you know, I knew I lived in Chicago, so it didn't seem possible because it was such a distance from what I understood of what I then began to sort of white Chicago, right? This kind of city that's so segregated. Like I think Chicago and Boston are probably the most. Two greatest cities in in America, and even right. to this day, 
with the neighborhood system, right? So my neighborhood was a black neighborhood and I knew that was Chicago. So it occurred to me that that other places couldn't possibly be Chicago because they were inhabited by people who I didn't think of were Chicago people. So I understood Chicago as a black city, right? Mm -hmm. And so Malcolm, and he has this kind of careful exegesis of the question of what does it mean? What does segregation actually mean? And he points out that segregation is about extraction. It's not about uh, being separate. And he's saying that no one would ever say that that Beverly Hills is segregated or yeah. Bel Air is segregated, right? He says, because those places have in turn their, the capital and the way that they exist. And this is what's your point about communism in the black belt in the South in the 1930s, right? And, and that movement was so important, right? Because he's saying that this is, becomes in many ways an economic question. And, the, and it's a question of extraction, which is what I think Stokely and the rest of these people begin to understand in this most evolved state, the Black Panther Party understands Black America as a colony, mm-hmm. right? Where extraction, in the same way that that the the, the plantations in in the Caribbean were yep. about extraction, right? And and also to be left alone in that extraction, right? So in in kind of reputation of the of the American the North American plantation system, the Black Atlantic here in the American South was about a close living relationship between Black and White on plantations where. In Jamaica and these places, right, you you can read accounts of this where uh, they wouldn't see a white person for years, yeah. right? So it's only about that kind of extraction, this kind of radical segregation. And so what Malcolm is proposing is that to to tear down that as as the way of understanding the world and understand that black people can choose to live on their own in in separate areas, but then have to be able to control the politics of their situation, the education system. And the way the economy works within within that perception, and that makes it real in the way that that white America took Manifest Destiny and made it real by you know uh, genocide and and land extraction and then enslavement to to have people work the just the the kind of land then they had stolen and, and to take up the space of the people that they had they had had sought to annihilate. And so Malcolm is preoccupied with geographic space in that. And again, it gets back to where he he lands and resolves is it has to be the body as mm-hmm. the as the most coherent system of existence and awareness for uh, people similarly situated. And this then it becomes a worldwide question for him, where at the end of it, he's like black means he's talking about the black revolution in Southeast Asia, the black revolution in Central America, the black revolution in Africa where people who are not phenotypically black are engaged in what he considers to be black revolution because it's about destabilizing white supremacist practices. But tell me, what's your view of the NFAC? I mean, I think it's a predictable response, right? I mean, this is Malcolm's point, right? The kind of notion of, you know, he talks about people, he says in one of his speeches, I can't, I think it's in the message to the grassroots, right? He's like, you know, he's like, people can have guns if they want, but he's like, if the government's not going to protect us from people with guns, we need to get our own. Yeah. And that's his point. He's like, you know, and this is, this becomes classic uh, Black Panther ideology, yeah. which I think what's happening now with the NFAC and is a, is a, is a response to the, the, the militia groups that are running around, white supremacist militia groups informed by, mm-hmm. uh, and even, even aided and abetted by the current occupant of the White House. To as back to this question of personal safety, and that's what the that's what this becomes, right? It becomes a question of whether you can resolve yourself in space. Yeah, but actually, my my question is not so much about the guns, but about yep. the demand for a territory. 
That, yeah, I mean, that I is think- what I find interesting. That the, 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 the guns to me are, are neither here nor there. It's it's the demand that I I am just I am in fact kind of heartened that that the discourse yeah, yeah. has reached um has has reached there. I, I mean, Farrakhan has kept it alive in the final call newspaper. They have the ten points still, and you know we want that. But besides them, I haven't seen anybody else really, you know, um, bring it up in a in a big way. And I was very surprised that that it that it was. Um, well, yeah. So that that's that's the the, the comment I was uh, looking um, for in particular. Yeah, the demand for land. I mean, is is important, right? But what, and I think this gets back to kind of the re- people revisiting Black Wall Street and the Oklahoma massacres and all these kinds of things, right? Because then. The natural response by white systems of white supremacy to black sovereignty is going to be a type of physical attack. And I think that's an historical fact. And so I think that's why the NFAC in, in the kind of dual practice, right? There's no sort of a demand for land while at the same time it's just demonstrating the fact that they're not going to be prepared to, to be uh, coerced off of it, right? And, and to take advantage of whatever. Uh, systems of physical or metaphysical protection that they can come up with. So yeah, I think it's a, a kind of binary a system of thinking. Right, right, right. Oh, and now I mean, one of the mo- the important things about your book in, in in extracting the political philosophy from Malcolm X's thought is that it then becomes uh, you know kind of timeless in a sense. It, it's not just about his biography and his life. It, it these are now principles of political philosophy i think that's so important um it, that that's just an extremely important project and and so it sort of, it sort of negates the questions i often ask um you know authors in this series about you know so how is it relevant for today because that's exactly what your whole book is about how, how is it relevant right. for today but there, there's one issue that i'd i'd like to talk about which which kind of I think puts me at odds with a lot of um, people who also admire Malcolm X and, and stuff. But and and I I don't know why it puts me at odds with so many. <laughs> but um, the whole idea of the kind of left right and Republican Democrat. Right? I mean I, I think you know Message of the Grassroots is one of the greatest pieces of political analysis period you don't have to qualify that with black or civil rights or nothing just the analysis if anybody wants to learn about the system of politics in the united states that is probably the best speech i think you can get how he shows the dixiecrats control the all the committees and and whatnot i think it's such an amazing thing and and you know and there's things about the wolves and the foxes and the northerners and the southerners and and, uh, you know so and i think you know, like Ice Cube took a lot of unnecessary heat for, uh, you know, just speaking to to the Trump campaign because I I am I I am sympathetic with Ice Ice Cube and and also I I am I don't consider, for example, the left uh, my friend in a sense or the right my friend. I view them equal equally, right? And and I will have friends on the left. I will have friends on the right, but I. I, for decades now, have not put myself in any of that. And, you know, in the third world, the whole non-aligned movement is about that too, right? The, sure. the states are not your friend. The the uh, Soviet Union are not your friend. You you can work with either of them. You can work with both of them. But you need to have your own goals in mind. 
right? And put that first and foremost. And, you know, and if anybody is with you, great, come on board. You know, we can, we can always have allies and friends, but if not, well, Hey, you know, we're, we're still going for this. So, I mean, I think that, that too many times, right. Uh, the, the philosophy, the actions, the, the, the project of Malcolm is, is, is tied up with the left, right? And, and I think that you know, the left have, have a lot of other things that I think uh, negate, you know, the, the project of black nationalism. If, if, I mean, that, that's how I would, would summarize Malcolm X's thought, right? Perhaps you might, maybe it's black-mindedness for you, right? Um, so yeah. let's, let's use your word, black-mindedness instead of black nationalism. Um, right. So um, yeah, I, I I think that you know a lot of time a lot of the projects of, of the left and liberals and the Democrats um, negate black mindedness, and that there are sometimes things on the right um, may actually support it. But but there's this this um, this tendency to to just keep yourself chained to the left. Um, sure. If, uh, and I'm just wondering, you know, what your views on that? Because because I do see that that you do, it seems quite firmly, uh, have your analysis on on the left. I think I right. Um, so I I just like you to um, to answer that, reflect on that. I'd like to hear what you say. Yeah, I mean, I think in many ways, Ice Cube becomes an interesting way to kind of parse this, right? Because I think what happened in this situation is Donald Trump as a figure is so far outside of the possibility of coherent engagement that I think that's the point, right? And I, you know, the, you, we need a functioning left and right in this country, right? As from a political perspective, we also need a, a functioning radical movement. The question is whether a radical movement can engage a similarly, a, a, a black political movement that's radical, can engage a similarly similarly situated white supremacist radical movement that I would say is represented by Trumpism. And I think that's probably not possible. And I think that where Ice Cube's system, his approach structurally kind of made sense, but the, the details of it would have benefited by him engaging people who, who work on political economy, radical political economy in certain ways to kind of refine the arguments he was making. I think that's where it, it became complicated. And I think if you're cavorting, you know, Donald Trump is, and you know, is, is, is someone that, that Malcolm X would have understood to be a similar figure as George Wallace. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think that in many ways uh, we've seen the resolution of, of the George Wallace, the, the most uh, radical notion of the Dixiecrat turned into a Republican. It's exactly what he's talking about in that speech, right? Donald Trump in many ways exemplifies that. And so the question would be for Malcolm in, in our political, or someone who's trying to use Malcolm X's system of thinking black-minded, what I label black-mindedness, is how do, how do you resolve that tension? And is there a possibility to form a coherent coalition with George Wallace? And I would think that he would probably think that's impossible, which is not for me to disagree with you about the facticity or the 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 uh, importance of his notion of not throwing away your vote by tethering yourself without responsibility to one side or the other. I think that there's a coherent, there's a, uh, if there's a coherent functioning right that's not bent upon systems of destroying uh, black subjectivity, then I think that makes perfect sense to kind of engage them on the margins there. 
But outside of that, I think it, it would be a question of, of not it's, at some point it's, it doesn't become a question of politics, per se, as a question of dystopia. I think that we've been experiencing a system of dystopia for the last few years or so. Okay, I, I, I would say I, I have a lot of, of sympathy for Candace Owens, for example. And like so and people on the left would would demonize her. You know, I I um and I think that is um unblack minded in, in my view, but I, I don't know what, what you would think. I I'd like to know. Yeah, I mean I think Candace Owens is in many ways exemplifies what I said about the kind of irresponsible attacks of black people, right? So where where I part ways with someone like Candace Owens is where she irresponsibly and harmfully attacks the subjectivity of, of, of black people to kind of demean them in a certain way. And this is, I think this is Candace Owens at her worst, right? Like mm-hmm. what she said about George Floyd, right? Is Candace Owens at her worst, mm-hmm. which, and I think some of that is, is a performance. I think some of it's a, a, a kind of spectacle and a performance that, that has nothing to do. Like, I don't believe, I don't believe that, she, that anyone can possibly believe some of the things that she says, but when someone says something like, you know, Breonna Taylor deserved to, there's nothing wrong with the police having killed Breonna Taylor. I don't know what to say about something like that. Right. And so that is, I think a person like, and Candace Owens just exemplifies a particular type. She, she becomes a cipher in some ways, right. That, that, that's an empty vessel to fill with those kinds of attacks of black people. I think that there's, there's a critique of, of black, uh, the black relationship to the establishment left that that's important to have. But I think Candace Owens and people like her take it too far and it becomes irresponsible because I just don't like, I just, I, I just have a visceral reaction to those types of attacks right. of uh, marginalized black subjects. And I think that's exactly, to me, that's the core of what we talked about, you know, earlier in our discussion, right? That becomes the core of Malcolm X's notion of joy and love is to how can we meet each other at the point of, of coherent relationship to, to understanding how, we can disagree, but also be joyous in that thing. I don't think we need to be about the business or Candace almost needs to be about the business. And I don't know. And I haven't spent as much time as I haven't spent time examining her thinking, if that's what we can call it, or her, yeah. her I've seen some of her performances. And so those are discouraging for me. So that's how I would position that. But I don't know enough about her to kind of responsibly comment on her as a, as a political subject. All right. Um, I mean, I've I've kept you here a long time, and I, I and and if I had my way, I could keep you here for much longer. But no, I could do this all day. This is, <laughs> yeah. this is Malcolm X deserves this, right? Exactly, exactly. But in in kind of a, uh, wrapping up, you know, um, what would you say, you know, about Malcolm X and his struggle, you know, that is most important for people to remember today and to take more seriously. I mean, I think our contemporary moment speaks to Malcolm X, and I did this in the book, right? The core of his argumentation is is simply to focus on police violence in a certain way, to understand that to the extent that we resolve the problem of, of the coercive threat of the state against Black subjects in many ways, that will, that will resolve many of the tensions that he's proposing. So I think that the, the point, the coherent uh, point of focus needs to be over the next however long it takes us. Is focusing on that as a as a as a coherent political project, and and taking up that challenge that Malcolm X situates is, is doing something about the attack of the attacks that, that manifest themselves on the black body, whether physical or metaphysical, and to then extract from that the possibility of positive black subjectivity. I think that's what I would say is is the, the what I would hope would be the message of the text. 
at the end of the day. All right. Well, well that's great. Um, before we go, I mean, I know you've just, you know, published this and, and you're promoting it, but, you know, uh, are there any other projects that maybe you're working on that you'd like people to know about or a website where people could find uh, your other work as well? Yeah. So as far as what I'm working on now, uh, I'm working on a, another philosophy book that's called The Wounds of Spirit, uh, A Phenomenology of Blackness, which is to to push past what I did in this book and to then be able to argue about what actually happens as the black subject deconstructs and reconstructs itself philosophically, and then to understand what that world looks like in a kind of speculative philosophical position. Mm-hmm. That's what I'm up to from a philosophy perspective. And then I'm working on a, a novel that then speaks to some of our conversation, right? It's basically, it's called, what if, uh, what if Holden Caulfield were black basically, right? All right. And Holden, Holden Caulfield is, you know, I have nothing but contempt for Holden Caulfield as a figure, right? This kind of irresponsible uh, white kid running around doing whatever he wants. So to kind of reflect on that in in almost speculative uh, fiction, to imagine if Holden Caulfield were a black kid and to see just how much trouble he gets himself into, and then how he then tries to resolve it. So this it's kind of the, the the novelistic presentation of the philosophical book that I'm working on to actually watch a subject go through a process of self-deconstruction and reconstruction. So those are two things I'm up to right now. Wow, that's interesting. Both, both of them are very interesting. And in the second one, um, uh, are you uh, uh, kind of uh, channeling or, or being inspired by Richard Wright and Native Son in, in any way? And, uh, dr- yeah, I mean, I think it's, yeah. yeah, absolutely. That, that tradition, and in many ways, you just enter Invisible Man into the record here and just say yeah. this is exactly what, because, you know, that's how it started off for me was actually just, to reflect on a uh, kind of literary analysis of Invisible Man versus Catcher in the Rye, right? And mm-hmm. to see that these kind of central figures both kicked out of school, see how they basically evolve over time. It basically, but then it, 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 it to me became uh, more useful to, to have it in the realm of kind of fiction in order to be able to do the things I wanted to do, to move the furniture around in the way I wanted to move the furniture around in the world to kind of talk about what that means to kind of get beyond this boundary, just see all our chains right beyond the boundary in certain kinds of ways. Yeah. Wow. That sounds, that's great. That really sounds good. I, I wish you all the best in those projects as well. Oh, no, I appreciate it. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for this interview. It's really been stimulating and enjoyable. No, Kirk, it's been great. I hope we can uh, engage in, in, in the future on some other projects since we have so much in common intellectually and, and, and kind of biographically. So I look forward to it. Yeah, me too, me too. Well, once again, the book is Black-Minded, The Political Philosophy of Malcolm X. And we've been speaking to the author, Michael Sawyer. And thanks also to you, our listeners. Make sure you sign up for our notifications so you don't miss any new interviews on this channel in the future. I look forward to seeing you on the next episode. 